0: let's get real, your stool shouldn't be too stinky. Naturally, it's going to have a little bit of an odor because it's a waste product from our body, but someone should be able to come in after us and not go, that's disgusting.
1: Welcome to Sex, Body, and Soul. I'm Kate Roberts, founder of The Body Agency. And on this show, we talk about the marvel that is our bodies, what they can do and what they need to thrive. Ladies out there, our time is now. Let's get to it. Our next guest is nutritionist and fitness guru, Jennifer Hanway. She, like me, is originally from Britain, and she focuses on optimizing high-achieving women's diets and optimum health. We together dive into how our gut is the absolute center of our universe, what our poops should look like, and all the myths about carbs, sugar, and booze. Yep, booze. We also talk about all the different special diets and what supplements really work. Jenny Hanway, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have a fellow Brit. Can I start there? I think we should definitely start there. I miss my Brits. I miss my British food. Seems we're going to be talking about nutrition. All the things that we're supposed to not be eating is what I miss. Pasties, crumpets. I have to say, I
0: was back a few weeks ago, and I did have fish and chips. They were gluten-free fish and chips, but I did have fish and chips and mushy peas with a glass of champagne. It was the best thing ever.
1: Jenny, fish and chips with a glass <laughs> of champagne. Oh, I, know, oh right? I would die for that. I would die for that. There's two things that I need to eat when I land at Heathrow in the UK, and one is a Marks and Spencers prawn and mayonnaise sandwich and then followed that evening by fish and chips I'm sorry I'm just putting it out there I know I'm I'm a nutritionalist nightmare but that's where we are I do literally the second that I arrive at Heathrow it's like you come out you're in arrivals
0: and then you turn right and you're at Marks and Spencer's food hall none of this makes any sense to anyone who's not listening from the UK but we know know what we're talking about I know
1: but Marks and Spencer's food hall at Heathrow I dream about it for my entire trip there (laughs) So, Jenny, I am so thrilled to have you on the show. You and I have had a couple of conversations now about how the gut is at the center of our universe, and mm-hmm. gut health affects everything our mental health, our sexual wellness and you went on this journey due to your own struggles. Tell us a little bit about what that journey looked like.
0: yeah, so I am the poster child for all of the reasons you have poor gut health, so My mom had a stressed-out pregnancy. I wasn't breastfed. I had a ton of antibiotics as a kid. I was a very unhealthy vegetarian from the age of about 12 to about 21. That's nothing against vegetarian diets, but being a vegetarian in the processed food, 80s and 90s, was not the best option for for anyone. Um, And then a ton of stress as a teenager and a young adult. So I was put on the contraceptives at a young age. You know, everything that could have a knock on my gut health. I had that. So I was the poster child for that. So I was working as a dancer and a fitness instructor. And on the outside, I looked super healthy. And on the inside, I was an absolute mess and had been for years and years. I can even remember being taken as a kid to a hospital thinking that I had an appendicitis and it was just gut health issues. And this really took me up to a point of, I think I was 30, early 30s, when I was hospitalized on a morphine drip because my digestive system just stopped working. It had enough. And with the joys of conventional medicine, very similar in the UK as it is here in the US, you know, yes, I want a conventional medicine doctor if I'm having a heart attack on a plane, They didn't give me much hope in terms of my digestive health. I was diagnosed. I don't really think of IBS as a diagnosis, but I was diagnosed with IBS, which is more a group of symptoms than anything else, offered some muscle relaxants as a way to manage pain and kind of told to go on my merry way. And really, that wasn't, that wasn't enough for me. I was 30 years old. I was a young woman. I was like, this isn't enough. So this is when I took things into my own hands and started doing my own investigation. I started working with someone who has some of the similar qualifications to myself, started to feel better, started to feel great, actually, and just really simple things like, I think it was cutting out gluten and taking a probiotic or something, something really simple, And I felt so good. I was like, well, A, selfishly, I want more of this for myself. How much better can I feel? I didn't understand how good I could feel. And B, how can I help other people? Because I Mm. knew that there were other young women struggling with this. Gut health is really an issue that affects mostly women. So Mm -hmm. I went back to school. I retrained. I'm still back at school. If you are in the health industry, you should always be learning and growing because the science keeps changing. And that takes me to almost the last decade of being involved in nutrition and wellness.
1: So as we know, the gut holds everything, right? It holds our stress. I just went through the list of things that the gut is the center of our universe, basically. And you taught me this. We have nerve endings there. We hold all sorts of stuff in there, but bad things and good things. (laughs) When you say give up gluten and take a probiotic, does that mean that you have literally no gluten and, and remind us what is gluten in? Because I seem to think it's in almost everything, right? What yeah. what's gluten in? And and what does it mean to give it up? And do you go into withdrawal? Like lots of questions.
0: <laughs> so you know, and um, giving up gluten and the making gluten is just one teeny tiny piece of the puzzle. So it's just a tiny piece of the puzzle. Now one of the there's a few issues with gluten. One of the re- reasons why gluten causes us so many problems is exactly as you say, it's in everything. So even if we're not having typical gluten foods like a pizza or a sandwich or pasta, gluten is used as a filler and thickener in so many processed foods. So one of the issues that, one of the reasons why we have so many issues with food is that we're having that constant hit from gluten again and again and again. And specifically, if you think of someone's Everyday diet, maybe they're having cereal and toast for breakfast, a sandwich for lunch, gluten for dinner. When we have any kind of food too often, our body sets up an intolerance to it. It causes an inflammatory response. The other part of this is that what happens when we eat gluten is that it, our bodies produce a protein called zonulin, and what zonulin does, I always think it sounds like um like the body from Superman or something. But what zonulin does is that the junctions in your gut, so the the intestinal lining that should look like this, zonulin causes this to come apart. And what happens is that we end up with something called leaky gut or intestinal permeability. Now we all have some amount of leaky gut because we have processed foods and stress and medications. But what gluten does is even if you're not celiac, it starts to open up those tight junctions in the gut. And what that means is that things get into the gut that shouldn't be there. So toxins and microbes and pathogens and food particles, and this sets off an inflammatory response in the gut.
1: Mm. Describe leaky gut. What happens?
0: Okay, so leaky gut. So we should have our junctions in our intestinal wall should be selective, so they should let some things in and keep some things out. So if I flip this on its head, our intestinal lining is one cell thick which is kind of a design flaw, but one cell thick is tiny, tiny, tiny. What we have on top of that one cell thick layer is something called our mucosal barrier. This is where our microbiome lives. So you think microbiome, one cell thick layer. If we have something called dysbiosis or an imbalanced microbiome, what that means is that we're gonna get more leaky gut here. And this one cell thick wall should be very, very selective. It should let the good things in, like the nutrients, and keep the bad things out and leaky gut or intestinal permeability can be caused by stress, medications, processed food, traveling, all of those things. So we all have some mm-hmm. some some level of it. Yeah. But gluten is one of those foods that will take those tight junctions and open them up so things can get in there that shouldn't be in mm. there.
1: Now, can you share some stats with us that you're aware of because I know that me, half my team at the body agency, most of my friends all have digestive issues and yeah. we sit around and talk about them and they're shameful and we get bloated you know everything that we all know about yeah what are the stats is it is it one in four women suffer from some form of digestive issues so here's the thing is that digestive issues
0: are one of the leading causes of death in the u.s and the uk wow and isn't that a scary stat and also yeah. you just what we're really beginning to understand is how so much disease and probably typically every single disease has its root in poor gut health. We can't think of something that is a metabolic or a lifestyle disease that doesn't have its root in gut health. So we know that pretty much all autoimmune conditions have their root in gut health. We know that some cancers have their root in poor gut health. We know that thyroid issues have poor gut health. So it's very difficult to say what percentage of the population has poor gut health, what probably the best thing to think about is that everything in our modern day life is set up for us to have poor gut health. And the other thing is, is that I talk a lot about the difference between common and normal. So poor gut health is very common, but it's definitely not normal.
1: Mm. So I'd love to get into, you know, you're you're obviously now a very successful, trained nutritionalist. Like, what does your eating day look like? <laughs> because I know that a lot of our listeners out there are going to be like, she doesn't eat pasta, she doesn't eat pizza, she doesn't eat french fries, she doesn't eat roast potatoes, she doesn't eat processed food, and they're already shock and horror, how am I going to do this? What's your typical day of eating? Do you start eating eating? For breakfast, we're going to get into intermittent Mm -hmm. fasting. What do you eat during the day and why? Sure. So I'll preface this with how I
0: eat is individualized to my body and my health challenges. Mm -hmm. So my genetic gun is loaded on both sides of the family. So both sides of the family have a history of chronic disease. So I know, number one, that I want to make sure that I'm doing everything I can to avoid that. So that's just epigenetics piece of the puzzle. So the genes that I'm born with versus how those express due to how I live my life, the diet that I take, the exercise, the supplements, et cetera, et cetera. So I know, number one, that my genetic gun is loaded for lifestyle disease. So I want to do everything that I can to avoid that. Number two, I have had the worst of the worst gut health. So with those things, it's always important to think about my diet with that lens in mind. If you don't have that family history of chronic disease, if you don't have that loaded gun of gut health, then you probably don't need to be as passionate, shall we say, as I am about my diet. So typical day, I wake up, first thing I do in the morning, I actually don't drink water first thing. First thing I do when I wake up in the morning, I wake up and I scrape my tongue.
1: Oh, I've heard about this. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: And the reason why, once you start doing it, you'll never be able to stop. The reason why is that overnight is our main time of detoxification. And what do we do when we typically wake up? We usually use the restroom. So we usually use pee, we usually poop, and we should scrape our tongue as well because a lot of the toxins are coming out. So the last thing that we want to do is wake up, drink a large glass of water and drink all those toxins. So I get up, go to the restroom, do whatever I need to do, scrape my tongue, drink a large glass of water, come downstairs, Coffee is something that I'm very passionate about. So I have organic, low-acid coffee. That's my absolute go-to. If I'm working out at 6 a.m., I work out fasted. If I'm working out a little bit later, I'll have a breakfast smoothie. So breakfast, either way, is a breakfast smoothie with grass-fed beef protein powder, collagen powder, flaxseed, zucchini, lemon, spinach, avocado. So that's breakfast pretty much 365 days a year. And I absolutely love it. Like, I really look forward to my breakfast. Mm. Before breakfast, I take a vitamin C supplement because you want to take um, vitamin C on an empty stomach. After breakfast, I'll take some probiotics. I take some hormone-balancing supplements, so a bunch of different supplements. And then during the day, lunch is usually what I call a big, ugly salad. So lunch is just like a ton of greens, whatever leftover protein we have. So it might be some canned salmon, some canned mackerel, some deli meat, chicken extra virgin olive oil, some olives, canned artichokes, as many veggies as I can get in there. I call a snack a mini meal because we want to be thinking that snacks tend to make us think of things like chips and crisps and candy and things. I say mini meal because it's a smaller amount of real food. Typically, I do some berries, some plant-based yogurt, and some nuts and seeds. And then dinner is usually a protein and more veggies. So last night we did, I think it was like wild-caught haddock with some caco seasoning and some flour that I'd made at home.
1: So there's no fruit in your day? Mm-hmm. No, I had some berries. Oh, the berries. So berries yes. are fine, right? They're the berries, lowest in yes. sugar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I don't love
0: bananas. They're very high in sugar. But let's say it's watermelon season or I'm traveling and the papaya is delicious. Like I'm always going to eat seasonally. I'm not super
1: strict about that. Mm-hmm. And Talking of sugar, processed sugar is the devil, right? Tell us what it does. It's delicious, but it is the devil. Yeah. So we should avoid (laughs) sugar. I mean, we know that. We know that. I was just hoping there might be a glimmer of hope that sugar might do something for us. And I know the answer, sadly. (laughs)
0: Unfortunately, sugar gives us calories. That's pretty much all that it does for us.
1: Yeah. So calories, but beyond calories, does it do anything else? I mean, it takes our blood sugar up, right? I mean, what are the effects of too much sugar? Diabetes, digestive issues? Heart disease, all of the above, candida,
0: bacterial overgrowth, you name it, sugar does it.
1: And how much sugar is there in alcohol? Because, you know, we've got to do something, right? We've got to treat (laughs) ourselves somehow. (laughs) So the alcohol piece of the puzzle, so you and I have
0: talked about this. And yeah. honestly, I can study my way out of any situation whatsoever. So if someone says, what about this? I can go, oh, there's a clinical study for this. Yeah. Unfortunately, the negative effects of alcohol outweigh the positive. And this is coming from someone who loves a good glass of champagne, who loves a great organic glass of red wine. But unfortunately, the negatives do outweigh the positives in terms of the sugar content, Mm -hmm. In terms of the effect that it has on our gut health, in terms of how much it stresses out our liver, and in terms of the fact that if we have alcohol in our body, our body prioritizes that before it burns off any fat, any carbs, anything else.
1: Mm. And I do understand that there's the least amount of sugar in champagne. Is that right? Yes. So my go-tos are
0: champagne, Prosecco, or red wine.
1: Prosecco, but that's so sweet. But you're having such a small amount. Oh, in your world. <laughs> 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 okay, so so we've got Prosecco, we've got champagne, and what was the last one? Red wine? Organic red wine. Mm-hmm. So organic
0: okay. red wine, if you're going to have a drink, that's going to be the one that has some health benefits for the antioxidants and polyphenols in there.
1: So you're, Jenny, you're living your best life ever now, right? How do you feel every single morning when you wake up? Are you one of these extraordinarily annoying people that springs out of bed and does a 10 mile walk and then come back and make your smoothie and you're just flying high? Is that how you feel? Pretty much. Oh, yeah. I'm so jealous. <laughs> but Pretty much. You've inspired me. I even I, You've absolutely inspired me. But yeah, it's about how you feel, right?
0: It's about how you feel, and it's about for me, it's about my health span, not my lifespan. So it's about you know I want to live into my hundred my hundreds, but I want to live that way, and I want to be healthy. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it is it is that way of I know how great I feel, and I know how terrible I feel when I don't stick to this. Mm -hmm. So you know, the positives really, really do outweigh the negatives. So if I say that doesn't mean that I don't have a glass of wine, it doesn't mean that if I'm not in the UK, I won't have my fish and chips and my roast potatoes. But, you yeah, know, you I treat, I choose, yourself. I treat mm-hmm. myself, but I yeah. choose those treats on how they're going to make me feel.
1: Yeah, totally got it. So you and I've talked about this. I have been sort of dabbling with the keto, ketogenic diet, which worked for me in the beginning and then it sort of stopped working. Mm-hmm. And, and then also intermittent fasting. So do you want to explain what both of those things are and, yeah. and, and also how they're different for men versus women? So
0: the ketogenic diet actually started as a therapeutic diet. So it started as a therapeutic diet for um, seizures and epilepsy. And then it came into our consciousness probably maybe around 10 years ago. And basically the ketogenic diet is a very low carb diet and characterized by high amounts of fat and medium amounts of protein. So that's where we kind of we're really looking at the ketogenic diet. It does have some health benefits for some people. So the ketogenic diet for me is a tool in my toolbox, but it's very extreme and it's not where I would start with most of my clients, especially women. Now, some of the issues with ketogenic diets is that It's it's very hard to stay ketogenic in an an everyday life. So I don't love things with a black and white. And the ketogenic diet, if you don't stay in ketosis, which is really hard for people to do. So ketosis is where you're burning your body fat for fuel rather than burning your, finding any carbohydrates in your diet. If you go slightly out of ketosis, everything that you're then eating gets stored as fat. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's just too much of a, that's too much of a,
1: non-exact
0: risk. science. Yeah. It's too much yeah. a risk.
1: Mm-hmm. And then
0: the other thing is that a lot of people are not optimized and this kind of goes into the gut health part. A lot of people are not optimized enough to digest that amount of fat. And I know that I'm one of them because I've tried the ketogenic diet and it gives me terrible gut health issues because I probably am not producing enough bile to digest that fat and emulsify that fat. And I might not have the digestive enzymes that help break down all of that fat. Mm. And then the other point would be that it is a stressor on the body. And we are all so stressed at the moment that the body doesn't know the difference between good stress and bad stress. So for me, a ketogenic diet, I might use it with someone who is incredibly overweight, who is insulin resistant, who is like, we need to do something quickly. That's where Mm -hmm. I would use a ketogenic diet and Mm -hmm. a lot more with males than with females. The same thing with intermittent fasting. So intermittent fasting is all the rage and Typically, when we think of intermittent fasting, we think of anything from kind of 14 to 16 to 18 to 24-hour fast. Now, I don't think anyone should be doing anything longer than about an 18-hour fast unless they're under medical supervision. And one of the reasons is, is that we're not metabolically healthy enough for our bodies to be able to cope with this. There are so many steps we need to get to before we can make intermittent fasting healthy for us. And we've talked about this, about the difference between men and women in intermittent fasting. The clinical studies that we have, so most nutritional intervention studies are done on healthy young white males. Mm -hmm. They are not done on any other population, especially women between the, you know, especially women of childbearing age, because there's so Mm -hmm. many other factors to think of. So number one, the benefits of intermittent fasting that we have have been shown mostly in men. Number two, from an evolutionary biology point of view, the men may have been hunting and gathering the women were at home looking after the children and preparing the food. So science says that intermittent fasting might not be the best option for women. And in my practice, what I see is that intermittent fasting is so challenging for women because of our more complex hormone balance and because of our thyroid that I am just not a fan of long-term intermittent fasting. I like three to four hours in between meals, at least 12 hours overnight, push that to a 14 or 16 a couple of times a week. And honestly, when my clients start doing that, they start feeling so much better.
1: Yeah. Well, as you know, I've been doing it for a while now and things have been shifting for me. So I think your body also needs a rest, right? And when I took a rest um, Mm -hmm. from it, I actually went to Los Angeles and was staying with a foodie and through that journey was eating everything i pretty much wanted but i was doing tons of exercise i felt on top of the world and yeah i do actually I, I don't know the medical reason behind it you probably know but i think my body had was asking for a bit of a rest and yeah. i i really just felt great we need to be metabolically flexible we need to be able to
0: be we need to be able to burn fat for fuel we need to be able to burn carbs for fuel and the other thing is is that it's. Everyone says this to me when they go on vacation and they might go to Italy and they might eat some pasta, they might go to the beach, whatever it is. The main thing that's happening there is that you're taking that stress away from your life. Mm
1: -hmm. And, you know, people are always so worried about getting fat, right? Putting on weight. And, you know, when you do go on vacation, you know, that's what you do. You eat, you drink, you rest up, but you're not going to come back (laughs) fat. You just go back to eating healthy again and, and, giving your body a a break. And you do. And I find
0: that some of my clients will drop a few pounds, like once everything's kind of settled out because they've had time for their cortisol levels to drop. They have actually got some great sleep. They've enjoyed their food rather than kind of either snacking all the time or worrying about what they're eating. And when we're on holiday, we're way more active than when we are when we're
1: just at home. Yeah. So talking of eating times, when you eat late, is it a myth? Or is it fact that eating late is not good on your body because you go to sleep and then it sits in your tummy? What's the the truth on this?
0: (laughs) What's the science? So will eating late make you put on weight? It can do. The main reason why we shouldn't be eating late at night is that actually the nighttime is when our digestion stops. So what we want to be able to do is we want to be able to eat the last meal of the day, And give our body a couple of hours to digest that food. What that means is that food is not going to be sitting around in our GI tract kind of cementing and getting a little bit gross overnight. And then all of the food that we put in can be used as fuel for repair and then we detoxify. So the main reasons why we shouldn't be eating late at night is that food is going to sit in our GI system, it's going to cement, it's going to mean bacteria is going to go places it shouldn't do, we're going to wake up, we're going to feel gross, and we're going to feel full of toxins. So ideally two hours finish eating two hours before you go to sleep
1: Mm. so if you go to sleep at 11 stop eating at nine yeah and you want to put that back even
0: earlier yeah i think we we call it early bed special in
1: in our house it's old lady dinner time oh lordy (laughs) us europeans we don't do that we don't do that all right now on to our favorite subject jenny poop As in to poop or not to poop? That is the question. It's not even a question. I mean, well, yeah, we have to poo. Obviously we have to poo and we have to (laughs) to do good poos. So let's talk about poop. What is normal? What is not? Is it a good sign of what's going on in our gut? Like tell me everything you know about pooping. Everything I know about pooping. It is a wonderful sign of what's going on with our health.
0: Full stop. So Mm -hmm. I have clients. I do a ton of testing with my clients. I love to look at lab work. I love to look at those biomarkers. One of the best things that we can do is turn around and look at our own poop Mm -hmm. because that's telling us so much what's going on in our body. So let's kind of Mm -hmm. talk about, again, normal versus common. It's very common for people not to poop once a day. We should be pooping at least once a day. Mm -hmm. So I'd say for most people, between one to three times a day is normal. Now, that is, of course, going to be affected by natural fluctuations, by what you eat, by stress levels, where we are on our cycle. I know personally, when I have PMS, so before my period, I get a little bit constipated. That kind of evens itself out whilst I'm having my period. But normal fluctuations aside, we should be going at least one to three times a day. When we go, we should feel like we're complete, like not that there's anything left in there. We shouldn't be straining but we also shouldn't be rush- rushing and making urgent trips to the bathroom. Let's get real. Your stool should be one to two to three pieces, and it should almost have that shape of your colon. Okay, mm-hmm. that's a really good piece of healthy food. Mm. It shouldn't have any giant chunks of food in it, so we shouldn't be able to see what we ate the night before. And it shouldn't be too stinky. Naturally, it's going to have a little bit of an odor because it's a waste product from our body, but... Someone should be able to come in afterwards, after us and not go, that's disgusting. Yeah. And then it shouldn't be floating. It should sink to the bottom of the bowl.
1: And if it smells really bad, what does that mean? If it smells really bad, it could be that you haven't been digesting
0: your food properly. So you might have something fermenting in there. It might be a little bit of putrefaction. I know this sounds disgusting. But basically, if there is that smell, what it means is that you haven't digested your food properly and it's got a little bit caught up somewhere in the GI system.
1: Mm, Okay. We could (laughs) talk about that for hours, but we we won't subject our listeners to that too much. Um, Let's get onto the subject of menopause, hormones changing. I, I know you're not a medical doctor but a lot of women complain during menopause that they put on weight yeah do we need to change our eating during during that period of our lives like what are your suggestions and are there any hormone supplements that you would recommend taking
0: so what I would rather is that my clients optimize their hormones and their diets before they get to menopause it's going to make things so much easier and here's the thing we often talk about hormones and diet in two separate breaths as if they were two separate things but hormones are not just things like estrogen and testosterone hormones also include our two major hormones our master hormones are insulin and cortisol insulin is our blood sugar hormone cortisol is our stress hormone if we don't have these balanced we're not going to be able to balance any other hormones within our body So cortisol, our stress hormone, that's a conversation for another day of how we manage that one. But in terms of insulin, we want to make sure that we have low, steady insulin because insulin Mm. is our storage hormone. And if we have high insulin, we're going to be storing body fat. So for my clients that are in their 40s, going into their 50s, thinking about menopause, if we can manage that insulin, if we can get them on a nice low-carb diet, lots of protein, we can get them insulin sensitive, we can get their hunger hormones balanced, then what's going to happen is menopause is going to be so much easier because it's then going to have that knock-on effect on all of our other hormones, including our mm. estrogen. Now, mm-hmm. in terms of that menopausal weight gain, a couple of reasons where that comes from is that that's not that our metabolism goes down. So there was a really interesting study that just came out in the UK that said that actually our metabolism don't naturally lower until we're in our 60s. So we cannot blame middle-age spread, our 30s, any of those things. But what happens when we get to menopause is that we do have something called sarcopenia, which is muscle loss. And what that means is that the the less lean muscle we have, the lower our metabolism. And then also we're not having all of that estrogen, which means that we're not going to be having as much testosterone, so we're going to lose that muscle mass. So the two things that I really, really want my women going into menopause, my women that are pre and perimenopause or going into menopause is get that blood sugar sorted out, eat that low carb diet, eat your protein and lift your weight. And that is going to help you fly through menopause. Mm,
1: mm, That's very good advice. Now I've started to take berberine. Mm -hmm. I think you might've recommended that, but if you didn't, should I be taking this? And what does it do? Um, I didn't recommend berberine. Berberine is not something that I would recommend just to
0: take just as one kind of single supplement. So what berberine does is that it's a blood sugar balancing supplement. So I would take something like berberine with something like chromium and maybe some green tea extract if I was having a meal with carbohydrates in it. Because what those supplements do is that they help the glucose from the carbohydrates get into the cell. Mm. Now, my thing is, if we were eating a low carbohydrate diet, we wouldn't need to do that. And for most people, and for everybody, supplements are 2% of what we're doing. What Mm. we need to be doing to get the same effect that you want to get from that Berberine supplement is to be eating that low-carb, high-protein diet and to be lifting some weight. That's how we really improve our insulin sensitivity. Mm
1: -hmm. And you've mentioned probiotics a number of times, and I take this Proflora Excellence 2.0. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you feel about this. This is, this is something you are familiar with. Uh, I've never taken a probiotic in my life before. Uh, and This says 30 billion CFU probiotic. What on earth does that mean? <laughs> oh, it's also acid resistant vegetarian capsules. Good for That's you. Good. So yeah.
0: CF, CFU stands for colony forming units. It mm-hmm. so was a great one for a pub quiz, if you ever need to know. Mm. More what we're looking for when it comes to probiotics is that I am passionate about specific probiotic strains, not necessarily the number. So we, when we first had probiotics come on the market, and I, again, this was like kind of 10 years ago, I remember going into health food stores and trying to find probiotics. And they were the strongest, most million billion CFUs that we could possibly get. Now we have a little bit more of a subtle understanding of probiotics. And I say a little bit more because we still don't know everything. But different probiotic strains do different things in the same way that different vitamins and minerals do different things. I have a favorite strain of probiotic. Um, by the way, I'm a hit at dinner parties. I can talk about poop, and I can talk about my favorite strains of. Oh, you're, you're invited to my place all the
1: time. I mean, the the, the, the only thing is missing is is talk about the clitoris. Because um, <laughs> we've got all three. Ha- poop, clitoris, you name it, goes at my dinner party. <laughs> Anal bleaching was the last topic go. that wow. we had. Yeah, yeah. yeah i, oh, I that fun. Yet. That okay. they all. I party so fun. Um, anyway. Carry on probiotics, Carry on. Back you were to
0: saying. Mm-hmm. Um, I've lost my train of thought. Oh, sorry. That. It was the anal bleaching.
1: <laughs> it was the anal bleaching. Um, all right. Well, so, Lance, I think, I think you pretty much covered it. But the last question I have for you is, and we talked about this the other day, you know, I have a tween daughter, soon to be a teenager, and I don't want her to have the struggles that I've had. And uh, we were talking about how it's important to get our teenagers educated and briefed and into a nutritionalist right from the very beginning. So they learn to eat healthy, they understand why, they don't develop eating disorders. So talk to us about that. And, And is gut health different for a teenager than it is for a menopausal woman? And when should we really start thinking about these issues for our children?
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the, as I mentioned very briefly at the beginning, one of the biggest One of the reasons why I have poor gut health and so many people have poor gut health is that our gut health actually is set kind of way back. So my gut health probably has something to do with my grandmother and then my mother and then birth circumstances and breastfeeding. And I think it's something like 70% of our microbiome is set by the age of one. Because what we want from microbiome, so microbiome is just that population of bacteria in our GI tract and we also, we often talk about good and bad bacteria, and it's not as simple as that. What we really want for a healthy gut is a diverse microbiome. So we want as many different strains as of probiotic bacteria in our gut as possible. And what we're seeing is that with C sections, with not breastfeeding, with not letting your kids get out and get in the dirt and play in the dirt and God knows what's going to happen after the years of hand sanitizer that we've all just had. You know, studies show that kids that grow up around animals have a more diverse microbiome. So really, you know, even getting them a little bit earlier and really getting them in the garden with their hands in the dirt around animals, all of those things is going to help them have a healthy microbiome. Mm -hmm. Now at your daughter's age, it's really about education and choices. Mm -hmm. And I think the hardest thing right now is that what we call food and what is actually food are two completely different things. Mm -hmm. And you and I both know this coming from the UK and now living in the US, that Mm -hmm. what they call food here is frankenfood. It's a science experiment. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So I think Mm -hmm. it's really helping your daughter understand, you know, what is the difference between processed foods? What is the difference between real foods that nourish our body? Knowing that those processed foods, they're not the end of the world if she has them. That can be 20 to 30% of her diet, but they are treats rather than kind of the things that you would have at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And just really helping her understand how eating a healthy diet can be so beneficial for
1: all of her health. Mm, mm. I, I mean, I really worry about diabetes and the sheer amount of sugar that kids are exposed to. Everything, you know, and the Nutella and want to put on everything. And it's just so processed and the pancakes. every I've started to look at labels in supermarkets now because I'm so terrified what she's putting in her body.
0: Never ever take the front of a package at face value. That is going to be marketing. That is not science. So you never Mm. look at the front because it will say healthy and it will say all of these things. These labels are not regulated by the FDA. Never Mm. look at the front of something flip it around at the back and
1: look at those ingredients. Mm. And what do we have to look out for? Is it numbers, letters, the Gs? Yeah, if not even we, thank goodness. I mean,
0: I grew up in the 80s and 90s. My husband did the same. And we just think about, oh my God, all the chemicals that we had as kids. So thank goodness there's a lot more laws around things like that. But really what we want to do is take a look at the back and look at the ingredients panel. And then the first ingredients in there are the ones that a food has the most of. So if any kind of sugar, honey, maple syrup, coconut sugar, if any of those are in like the top three ingredients, we definitely don't want to be getting that. So we really just want to think, can we recognize this as a food? Can we look at those ingredients and know what they are? So that would kind of just be my, you know, processed food is different to prepared food. Does that look like what it used to be? And my example Mm, for
1: that mm. would be Cheetos, certainly do not look like an ear of corn. No, they don't. They don't. So processed food then. I mean, obviously the way to go is buy everything organic. If it's a vegetable, make it a leafy vegetable. Um, if it's a fruit, make it a berry. Like we know these things, but that's not always possible, right? I mean, the, it's also very expensive to yeah. shop in that way. And a lot of families in America can't afford to do that. In fact, they go to McDonald's and they eat all that rubbish. What's your suggestion on that? Because it is hard to eat organic, real food three times a day. It, period. So it, is, it is hard. And the society that
0: we live in, especially here in the U.S., everything is set up to keep us fat and sick and unhealthy. Mm. And that comes right from big food and big pharma. And that's a whole other soapbox that I could get on another day. But it is very, very, very hard for societies being set up for us to have convenient foods. Mm-hmm. Now, the reality of this is that no, it's not expensive to eat non processed foods, but it is time consuming. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Because we don't want to be there making our potato wedges from potatoes and, and, you know, processed food is easier and quicker and more convenient. And we're all super busy. But it doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be organic. It doesn't have to be freshly poured out of the ground. It doesn't have to be from a farmer's market. So, in terms of vegetables, we have something called the clean 15 and the dirty dozen. So, the clean 15 are the foods that you can eat, they can be conventionally raised. the opposite from being organic. And you can buy them and they don't have to be organic. So these are things like bananas, pineapples, anything with a thick skin, avocados, so you don't have to get those organic. And then the dirty dozen are the foods that you really should be buying organic, things like berries, grapes. And if you can't afford those, get the foods with the thicker skin, like the citrus fruit, something like that. And then it doesn't have to be complicated. I was talking to a client yesterday who was struggling getting vegetables in. And I think she was imagining that she had to make, like, artichokes from scratch with some ridiculously delicious dip or any of those things. And I was like, I had a can of artichokes for my lunch and then frozen cauliflower rice for my dinner. Mm. So we think we overcomplicate these things. Mm-hmm. And I think we think perfection, and that gets in the way of progress.
1: Mm. Well, Jenny, I think we have to have part deux of this because we are out <laughs> of so time. Much we haven't talked. About. yeah there's so <laughs> much that I had to ask you and haven't gotten around to it but um, and plus I have to go off and make my organic smoothie there you go well, yeah <laughs> and I'm going to be texting you for the ingredients but you have been <laughs> extraordinarily informative I look forward to having you back Yeah, you can learn more about Jenny on the bodyagency.com website. And would you like to tell the audience how they can reach you?
0: Yeah, so um, you can find me at jenniferhanway.com and then on Instagram at jenniferhanway. So quite simple.
1: Jenny, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us, and I hope to see you very soon. Thank you, Kate. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Sex, Body and Soul. Remember, you can find all of my favorite products and resources to support your health and sexual wellness through my one-stop shop, The Body Agency. Be sure to sign up for our email list at thebodyagency.com for the latest curated recommendations from our industry experts. Thanks for listening.